This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, the coronavirus, Jason, you know, initially, I think we thought it was the great equalizer, meaning everyone was similarly at risk of getting it. We learned very, very quickly that was not the case. And we have a great guest to get into that. We do. Uh, really happy to have with us Amelia Simonova. She is Associate Professor of Economics and Health at the Johns Hopkins Carey School of Business, joining us on the phone from the nation's capital. And Amelia, it's really nice to have you with us. You know, Often we're talking to some of your colleagues over at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, which of course is supported by Mike Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg Philanthropies and Bloomberg LP, the parent of this station. But it's a good reminder of the economic impact of this virus that we also should be so concerned with. That disproportionate effect that Carol alluded to. Tell us what the data show. Hi, Carol and Jason and everyone at Bloomberg News. Thank you for having me. Um, And this is a great question. We do talk a lot about the public health impacts, which are, of course, foremost and, and most important. But the economic impacts are also uh, catching up with us, and I think we'll see those economic impacts unfold for the foreseeable future. Now, economists are talking about at least the one year to one and a half, maybe two year horizon over which we're going to see um, the impact of the coronavirus epidemic. And as you mentioned, just like the public health and the health impacts are disproportionate, they're not, it's not the great equalizer. On the contrary, it seems to have exacerbated already existing differences and disparities in the population. So the economic impacts are not the same across different states, across different demographic groups, and even across genders. And what we have found is that, you know, there is a lot of structural reasons for that. And I'm happy to talk a lot more about that. Amelia, let's get into it. Because, right, we have found out that, you know, Blacks, Latinos are impacted much more severely because of this. And a lot of times it's because some of it has to do with their own health situations, but it also happens to do with the kind of jobs that they're doing. And I think what you also get into in some of the work that you've done is occupations in certain cities and state, right, are certainly going to be affected by the amount of different types of populations within that state. Absolutely, and uh, the, uh, the the one metric that we have looked at is how well can occupations be performed remotely, and in a in a in a situation of social distancing, be it a complete shutdown where everybody is staying at home, or just uh, you know you can't go to the office every day, you can go every third day, or any of those, it matters a lot who can do their work from home and who can do it well, um, and it also matters how this affects your mobility. And we do have uh, uh, data and we have studies that show that um, there are big differences across economic, social, demographic groups like blacks and Latinos and Native Americans are much less likely to be in jobs that can be performed remotely compared to whites and Asians. And these are the groups that we have looked at because that's what's available, but it exactly agrees with what you're saying. So we do have these. They are underlying. That's how the economy is. And, uh, and and this is before COVID hit. COVID only made things worse. 
And so, Amelia, when you look at how this will manifest going forward, how soon will we see the economic impact of this, or are we already seeing it disproportionately when it comes to these different uh, categories? So we, we are already seeing the impact, and you can see, you all know the unemployment numbers. Right. Um, we are in a situation of really high unemployment. Um, um, the, the numbers are not disaggregated by, by racial groups, or at least you don't have the official numbers. I think when we see those numbers, it will be confirmed, but by what I've been talking about will be confirmed. What we do see is we have differences in um, the impact of, uh, of, of, of unemployment compared in different states, depending on how teleworkable or how uh-huh. able are people in those states to perform their jobs. So in, in states where you have fewer people able to perform their jobs remotely, you have higher unemployment rates. Um, and in states where more people can do them, you have lower unemployment rates. So you can, you know, draw conclusions about what we see about demographic well, what well. You know what I just want to jump in? I think what's interesting about this work, especially in a day when we are hearing from Nancy Pelosi or David Weston caught up with her, um, House Speaker, and we're going to hear a little bit of that uh, conversation shortly, but... You know, when we're trying to figure out relief, it's just a reminder that not every city is impacted the same, not every state is impacted the same, and a lot of it has to do with your demographics, you know, because that composition has determined kind of who has been impacted most by the virus, maybe because they couldn't find work or what have you, and may also tell us a little bit, Amelia, about the kind of relief that maybe needs to go to certain parts of the country specifically. Well, I, I, I can tell you that there's very big differences across states. For example, in Washington, D.C., where I live, more than 60% of occupations can be performed remotely, which means that traffic went down uh, substantially, food traffic, all kinds of traffic. People just stayed home. And even when they started reopening, people did not go back to work because they didn't really have to. But in a place like West Virginia, more like 30% of jobs can be performed remotely. And so um, even if you if you shut down stuff, people will still have to go to work because they're considered an essential profession. So traffic doesn't go down as much right. as it should be. And then when they start reopening, everything is going to, when they start reopening, everything is going to go back and exceed what has been happening before. If we draw a parallel between traffic and, and infection rates, which which is still to be proved, but there's some evidence there that suggests that that's the case, you can imagine what's happening with the infection rate as well. It doesn't go down as much as it should be. Right. It's going to go up yeah. much more once you reopen. All right. We're going to leave it there. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. But thank you so much, Amelia Simonova, Associate Professor of Economics and Health at the Johns Hopkins Carey School of Business, joining us on the phone from Washington. The cover story this week is so timely. It's by Bloomberg News senior writer Stephanie Baker. She has been one of those reporters who has given us all a front row seat when it comes to the virus. She joins us right now on the phone from London, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the phone in Massachusetts. And I feel like, Joel, I see this book by Stephanie in the works, COVID-19, my first person account, because she has just done some incredible reporting on all of this. Uh, I mean, Thank she does you. incredible reporting all the time, uh, but especially on this one. Um, and, you know, the I think the, the slight difference here was like this particular story is not quite as much of the first person story as some of the other ones. Right. Um, but it's about probably the most, in, in my mind, one of the most important people in the world right now, who's an Oxford professor named Sarah Gilbert, 
who has basically been toiling away on vac- vaccines for coronaviruses, right. never getting any attention. She had, uh, you know, the the effort that is she's the, is sort of the culminating effort right now began actually with Ebola, and then she went to MERS. And lo and behold, at the beginning of the year, all of a sudden, a coronavirus pops up, and suddenly it, we have a person who had been working on a very similar project and was able to pivot and basically uh, change some of the uh, approaches that they were looking at. But there, she is months ahead of where we think other people are in terms of maybe being able to have a viable uh, a vaccine and Stephanie, um, I'm just really curious. Uh, what what is she like? What is Sarah Gilbert like? Yeah, I mean, she's really interesting. I, I felt a, a bit like um, a, a pestering student asking for you know what the next homework assignment would be. You know, she has <laughs> she's extraordinarily sort of focused and efficient and conscious of um, keeping her eye on the prize in terms of not wasting her time, you know, on things that are not relevant. And that, it's just, it comes across in every interaction I had with her. Um, You know, she's a serious-minded scientist, um, and she knows that, you know, you get the sense when you speak to her, she knows that this is her moment, that, you know, years of research might finally pay off because of a sort of confluence of events um, and, you know, that she needs to, you know, really just keep on with it, keep on top of it and take one challenge at a time uh, to try to, you know, sort of push this thing forward and hopefully across the line. Um, you know, she's a scientist. She's not, she's not a warm and fuzzy person. She's, she's you know, but I, I wouldn't want, I, I would want someone to be as serious minded as she is um if you're looking for someone to save us from this mess so so stephanie there's there's dozens i think in the hundreds of efforts now under underway to actually get this vaccine what makes the oxford approach different than uh, some of these other ones including you know moderna came up yesterday as one that um the market got really excited about what what is oxford's approach here yeah i think that one of the biggest differences is the safety profile. And, you know, we'll find out more about the Oxford vaccine when they report preliminary results from their phase one uh, trial uh, on Monday. Um, but all along, um, Sarah Gilbert has expressed, you know, confidence in the safety profile of, of this vaccine, that they've tested it in something like 12 different vaccines. And those vaccines haven't won approval, but they've that, that platform, the technology that she's using, has been in thousands of people already. So they have a fairly confident sense of, you know, what the adverse event, you know, profile of this vaccine would be. And they're, they're quite confident that that's not a huge hurdle. And I think, you know, some of the results that came out from Moderna, the, the, the adverse event profile did take some analysts by surprise. Um, and if you think about we need a vaccine for not millions but potentially billions of people, if you've got 5, 10, 20% adverse event profile and you multiply that by the number of people that are going to need to, to have a vaccine, that's huge, right? So we need something that is safe primarily to be able to roll it out to a large number of people. 
And so, Stephanie, as you were talking to her and as you came to understand this, and, and as Carol alluded to, you have done such a great job on this particular project, as you always do, of sort of taking the whole view, and, and it has been a personal story, as you have helped us understand from a consumer and a personal perspective how this is all working. What's your sense of how scientists are working together, the collaboration? Because, you know, we've been talking to a bunch of CEOs. We talked to the Inovio CEO and others. I mean, everybody's racing for this. There is obviously an element of like wanting to literally save the world. But there's also a sense that beyond heroic, people could be, this is Bloomberg after all, wildly successful. I mean, this could be a game changer on an economic and, and financial level, too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, it's extraordinarily competitive. You know, I think um, you know there's a there's a race to get there first. Um, you know, I did look at, for instance, the last the, the polio vaccine that was developed by Jonas Salk, who was you know you know given banner headlines as you know the one who saved the world from uh, this debilitating disease, polio. You know, I've often thought that whoever gets to, to a vaccine first, in this case, even if it's not perfect, will be kind of the Jonas Salk of our time. Um, I think there is, you know, even with the competitive nature of this, I think there is collaboration uh, among scientists, and you see it on social media, and you see it in sort of the research reports. And one of the things that Sarah Gilbert said to me is, you know, no one knows how strong the immune response really needs to be to achieve protection in people. You know, we don't know the levels of neutralizing antibodies or T-cell responses, but once one vaccine developer gets a result on what those levels really need to be, need to be and what those levels correlate with the level of protection, she, you know, she said the whole field will gain from that. They'll know what they're aiming for. Um, and in that sense, I, I've often thought, looking and talking to scientists on this, this is just such a huge boon for science in general, you know, that, you know, a, we're appreciating what they do more um, and realizing right. how important it is and, you know, that, you know, that this will eventually have a huge uh, positive effect, I think, in the end. I have to say, Stephanie, your story is, and I do mean it, like you've given us a front row seat, and I feel like every time Jason and I, and I'm sure Joel feels the same way, you know, we read something from you, we learn something more, much more detailed when it comes to either antibodies or this process of what it takes to get a vaccine done. Um, I just always feel so much smarter. So thank you so much. It is the cover story this week. Our thanks to Bloomberg News senior writer Stephanie Baker on the front runner who is months ahead of her competition when it comes to getting a COVID vaccine. And of course, our thanks always to Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so let's talk a little Business Week economics yes. now. It was a big day for data. We talked a some little good, bit about some it. Some good, some bad. Some good, some bad. So yeah. let's figure out what it actually means. Uh, we're saying good afternoon to Yelena Shalechev, a senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, joining us on the phone from Long Island. Yelena, how are you? Good afternoon, Jason. Very good. Very yeah. well. And uh, there is some good data. There is some uh, bad. And uh, that highlights what is going to uh, happen to the U.S. economy. I think uh, the good ones are retail sales, obviously, for the month of June, but that's in the past. The data is stale, and uh, the uh, stubbornly elevated levels of unemployment uh, benefits are telling us that 
the economy will not be able to continue to recover on its own. The economy is approaching a cascade of cliffs, including the expiration of unemployment benefits in uh, the top up of $600, and uh, the payrolls protection program will stop accepting new applications in the beginning of August. And on top of that, we are getting um, uh, the, um, a lot of uh, different mortgage forbearance plans are expiring mm. as well. So, you know, the consumer may find themselves uh, between the uh, the rock and the hard place over the course of next several months with delayed payments coming due and no money to pay them. I mean, we cannot underestimate, right, Elena, how important these relief programs have been for supporting the economy. I mean, it's we know GDP, not great. We know that. But imagine without these relief programs, how much worse it would be. And without these relief programs, how tough it will be to get to a really strong recovery or stronger recovery. Absolutely. The uh, robustness of the recent data is by no means an indication of uh, uh, the economy uh, that can recover on its own. Instead, it's a testament of the timeliness of uh, the unprecedented policy response and uh, actually the need for more. So I think uh, Congress will agree on uh, on extended aid by the end of the month, but it will be slightly less generous and uh, with an intention to incentivize people to go back to work if there is work out there. Yeah. So as an economist, how do you view that? I mean, the, the, taking it strictly through sort of a, a data lens, knowing the models as well as you do, talking to your team like you do, Yelena, what, what is the right policy response here if you were to design it? So uh, the uh, $600 top-up uh, to unemployment benefits in, in many cases exceeded uh, the uh, previous uh, paycheck, basically, when a person was uh, employed and uh, – people started getting more than they were before the crisis. So adjusting and uh, calibrating this um, uh, additional unemployment benefit would be a tremendous help going forward. So mm. uh, on the one hand, you need to incentivize people to go back to work. On the other hand, you really need to compensate uh, a person who is not responsible for losing this job uh, just simply because of what happened and uh, support income going forward. So uh, topping uh, unemployment benefits at 100% of um, the previous paycheck would be one solution. Cutting it in half, I mean cutting in half $600, say um, uh, pay a top-up of $300 would be an easier solution, but uh, in some cases it will not be well calibrated. Right. You know, there's a bunch of Fed speakers. You go on the Bloomberg right now uh, and also at Bloomberg.com, you're going to see, you know, a bunch of statements um, and events where a bunch of the uh, Fed presidents are speaking, different events, if you will. And you've got the Atlanta Fed president, uh, Rafael Bostic. He's saying that the U.S. economy leveling off amid the virus outbreak. And he says, you know, real-time data, real-time data that they are getting today is suggesting, again, that leveling off in terms of level of business activity, in terms of the amount of jobs that are being returned to the economy, you know, and he's just talking about nervousness exactly to what you're speaking to, Yelena, 
about these relief programs that if they don't come or if they're smaller or if there's delays, uh, there's another one by the Chicago Fed President Charlie Evans says he still expects positive economic momentum in the second half. How are you guys calling the second half at this point? So, yes, you're right. There's uh, a lot of uh, policy uh, speeches right now, and it's, it's very hard to, to keep track of yeah, them. Yeah, I know, I know. But uh, the, the whole idea, actually, the, the, there are a lot of uh, similar themes uh, throughout all the speeches, and uh, it's, it's about the topic of uncertainty. So the uncertainty is extremely elevated. This is something that uh, uh, Lael Brainerd, uh, the board member of, uh, for, uh, of uh, the Fed, highlighted yesterday, po- policy uncertainty and economic uncertainty is extremely elevated. And in this environment, it's very much up to the policymakers, the lawmakers, to keep uh, to provide that bridge uh, going into the second half of the year, going into the time when uh, the health crisis is over and it will be over. But in the meantime, this uh, policy support is absolutely essential. Yeah, All no right. doubt about really it. Really good to uh, catch up with you. That's and a thank theme you. of the day, don't you think, Jason? What's that? We need more relief. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, certainly we heard it from uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And, and I think Yelena made a, a really interesting economic case and also helped us understand some of the contours of this. And, and part of the debate is what is the right amount? And is it just, you know, you cut it in half? Is that sort of too essentially um, not dull, but but not sort of nuanced enough to, to really uh, help solve the problem? I but think it's make, a big question. Right. And I think uh, House Speaker Pelosi saying, you know, you got it's got to be targeted. It's got to get to the right groups of yes. people. And um, states and munis- municipalities, I think, totally. is another element. We didn't talk as much about that, but we know that that uh, is being debated as well. Yelena Shalecheva, thank you so much. Always good to catch up. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Time for the drive to the close. Scott Collier is with us. He's CEO and CIO at Advisors Asset Management. They've got, uh, I think, approximately $27 billion in assets under management. They focus on the fixed income market. He joins us on the phone from Monument, Colorado. Hey, Scott, nice to have you here on this Thursday. Tell us a little bit about Colorado, though, and how things are going in terms of the virus and how it is for you personally and professionally. Well, uh, that that's a, a big question today. The uh the governor instituted um, mandatory mask wearing in all public places. So uh, up until now, it's, uh, you know, it's been maybe half the people wear masks in public places and stores. But uh, as of midnight tonight, everyone will wear a mask. Uh, as far as cases and spread in Colorado, really has not been uh, nearly as bad as places that are farther south. So uh, uh, knock on wood, we feel a little bit lucky that way. But, uh, you know, it's it's a very big concern. It's a very big concern, really, mm-hmm. no matter where you go. So uh, professionally, uh, you know, we have offices nationwide, so they're all in different areas and experience different levels of uh, problems. But uh, all in all, 
everybody seems to be operating well. Most of our people are operating from home. Yeah. And so as you look at those headlines, both locally and, and nationally, through an investor's lens, Scott, what does it cause you to think about? And maybe more importantly, how has your view changed over the last, say, three to five weeks? <laughs> wow, we're talking long stretches of time here, Jason. Um, so uh, really, my, you know, the outlook really I don't think has changed as far as an investor over the last three to five weeks. We've continued to see a, a slow but bumpy opening of the economy. And I think we have to remember that we've had pandemics, even in this country, um, you know, may, maybe not so many in the last 50 years, but you know, I can even remember uh, polio growing up and, and uh, you know, really the, the fear that that caused. We never shut the economy down, ever, ever. Uh, no matter what the pandemic was, there was never a, hey, everybody go home. We're going to shut the economy. This economy wasn't broken. It wasn't broken before we started. In fact, it was really kind of on fire. We just turned it off and then what we did is applied about $3 trillion worth of stimulus. Now we're opening it slowly. And granted, we're having to tweak back a little bit. Restaurants and bars, you know, they're bearing the blunt of it. But once again, I think, you know, we've learned a lot from Asia, and that is masks work. And, and so, you know, we have a large presence down in Texas. They're now mandatory masks everywhere. Obviously, they, they've had a bit of an outbreak. You're going to get those bumpy spreads as we try to deal with it. But ultimately, I think, you know, everybody is focused on vaccines and therapeutics. A vaccine would cer certainly change the outlook for everybody. As far as markets you know, we've seen a tremendous recovery, obviously, since the lows on March 23rd. Um, interesting. We're starting to see leadership changing. I, I think uh, today's market's a great example of, you know, kind of the um, um, the winners uh, that have been year-to-date. Uh, those, those are beginning to roll over a little bit since the bottom. Uh, on March 23rd, we've actually seen leadership in places like energy, which were like, wow, where did that come from? Materials are strong. Technology is still strong. Um, but that's kind of what you would normally think about in a recovery. You would think about kind of those cyclicals uh, beginning to outperform. And that's, that's kind of what we're seeing at this point in time. And, and we think it'll continue for quite some time. Yeah, you're pretty optimistic. It's interesting. On our planning call this morning, we were, our producer Paul Brennan, kind of sharing uh, with us some of your thoughts. I mean, you think a proper recovery could materialize earlier than we think, correct? I do. I, I think um, I think generally the population, because they've been <laughs> sequestered at home and properly scared out of their, their, their uh, wits, I, I think the business cycle is different than the, the safety uh, uh, concerns maybe of, of the general public. And, and I think the business cycle is returning faster than most people would think. Um, and I think we're, we're seeing that in the data. We're seeing it in retail sales. You know, we didn't get a, a bad number this morning in, in unemployment claims, but generally the employment reports since the bottom have been absolutely astonishing. I mean, astonishing. So we think that probably continues. What do you mean astonishing? You mean astonishing in a bad way? No, astonishing in a good way. We uh, you know putting a, a larger number of people back to work than any of the analysts thought. 
um, now, whether that continues we still have seven, or not. We still have 17.3 million Americans claiming ongoing unemployment benefits and state programs. That's ongoing. That is correct. That's a lot. Well, that is. But on the other hand, I think, once again, the economy wasn't broken. Now, granted, there are going to be companies that aren't going to be able to start up. There are going to be restaurants that will just never open. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think you're going to find that as factories add more shifts, as you see a global healing of the economy, and then finally what I said before, if there is any hope for a, uh, a vaccine next year, I, I think you're going to see uh, the economy recover a lot faster. You know, working from home has been surprisingly seamless for our company, something I'd never, ever would have imagined. But it, it really has worked out well, and for a lot of companies, it really has worked out well, I believe. All right. Well, we really appreciate your time, Scott. Thank you so much. Scott Collier, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Advisors Asset Management, joining us on the phone from Monument, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.